0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our guest, screenwriter and director, Justin Trefkarn. Your daddy, he's an outlaw and a wanderer
1: by trade. He'll teach you how to pick and choose and how to throw the blade. He oversees his kingdom, so no stranger does intrude. His voice, it trembles as he calls out for another plate of food. One more cup of coffee for the road. One more cup of coffee before I go to the valley below.
0: Wow. One of the best. One of the best from one of the
1: best. Why did you choose that, Justin? For many reasons. I have a vivid memory of listening to that song properly for the first time when I was first discovering Bob. Uh, I was about sort of 18, 19, and I was on a train um, going down through the south of Spain with some friends. We had an interrailing ticket. We'd left school and we were mm-hmm. heading towards uh, Morocco eventually and i was on this train and it was stinking hot and there was no room to sit and i had my you know walkman on back in the day everything i had in those days was on tape of course and i just remember that song and i remember watching the sunset drinking this impossibly strong spanish coffee on the train which i'd never had before either and loads of things happening at the Mm. same time and something about the heat i was in spain and that song just absolutely torched my heart and my soul in such a way that it's it's stayed with me ever since, you know, it's it's an album that I've just loved almost from the first time I ever heard it. But it's but it's also something that over time it's interesting because the song itself refers to that particular verse I chose is the verse that has over time it's the one I kind of skipped over. Um I found the sort of bookended and then I started to really listen to it. And for me it's kind of if I were to capture the essence of Dylan for me and where I've come to in the sort of 30 plus year journey I've been on listening to his music that song and that verse conjures for me something that I that speaks I think it's it captures perfectly the kind of crossover moment for me in, in my relationship with Dylan where he where it became personal and I think he he's he's writing in a, in a way that he's suggested that he's coming to with 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 some of the work he'd done in the early 70s but i think he sort of lands it there with this kind of sense of this sort of he's i think ultimately he's kind of surrendering to kind of mythology and to the earth and to these kind of bigger darker and more kind of gnostic themes that i think start to emerge in his work in the 70s
0: i mean if you were a teenager when yeah. you, when you heard it what did it mean to you you know based on your life experience at that point
1: well, I mean, maybe it's worth sort of tracking back a little bit because it was—it meant everything. To be honest, I mean, i, I was was—I'd been, um, you know, as, as many people were who I knew at the time. We were—I was sort of locked away in a boarding school in the sort of late eighties and early nineties, not really enjoying it that much. Starting to kind of slightly lose my mind, and I'd had through. Having an older brother had sort of discovered some of the sort of gateway drug artists like Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, Simon and Garfunkel, a bit of Pink Floyd, and then Dire Straits cropped up. And my study mate at the time was like, oh, there's this guy, Bob Dylan, who sounds a bit like Mark Knopfler. That was the kind of conversation, (laughs) you know. So, And in fact, my first, so so the first album I bought that summer, you know, I went to our price in in, uh, St. Ives in Cornwall and got Infidels because that was sitting on the shelf there. And I thought, well, you know, it's Bob Dylan, I'll get it. you know. And it was produced by Mark Knopfler, so I felt I might right. be in safe hands. Anyway, but i have been listening to that quite a lot. And then another guy I was at school with kind of knocked on my door one day, and he just said, are you listening to Bob Dylan? He said, oh, yeah. I said, oh, I've got a tape, a little mixtape. You should listen to some of these songs. And I was just about to get on a bus. We were going down to London for some school trip. I think we were going to an art gallery or something. Anyway, I put the tape into my Walkman, and I sat on the back of the bus, and the first song was Like a Rolling Stone. And... It was about a two-hour journey there and about a two, three-hour journey back and I only listened to that song <laughs> for <laughs> five up. hours. Wow. And everything changed in my life at that moment and I remember thinking I had a sense of how life was going to be and now everything was up for grabs and everything changed and has changed ever since. I mean, it's, it's, it, Bob has been the kind of guiding light and the kind of guardian angel and the surrogate father of my entire sort of adult existence and that, moment was the moment that changed everything. So by the time I got to Spain, I'd had a sort of slightly odd journey to to get to know the music because after having got I got a Greatest Hits record, as you know, that one that had the weird... The Like a Rolling Stone on that, though, was the Isle of Wight performance. It was a weird... I think they went through a phase of issuing the cassette... You know, it's the one with him with the Book it is on the front, mm. the, the sort of classic oh, Greatest yeah. Hits. But I think the version I had definitely had the Isle of Wight, Like a Rolling really? Stone on it. It was very frustrating. So I didn't have to sort of dig it out find it somewhere else. But another friend of mine gave me... So it was the year that the first Bootleg series came out. Mm. And that was mm-hmm. my first real exploration. So I got to know all of the all these kind of bootleg versions, of and, I, and through John Baldy's unbelievably brilliant liner notes, I then started buying all the albums, and I think I was sort of working through them mm. and finally got to uh, Desire, at the point at which I was about to jump on a train
2: and go to Spain. I think that bootleg series, that first, you know, 91, volumes one to three, is such a great entry point. For people who are roughly our age, that came along and it was a perfect entry point because you could kind of, it's kind of an alternate history. And it works just as well, I'm sure, as starting at the chronological point of introduction because you've got all those yeah. so, there's a journey in there but there's also you've got all those songs and you can very easily say well that's an outtake from Planet Waves I like uh, Nobody Except You maybe I'll try out this Planet Waves album and you can go off wherever you like Well, also it's very hard to get hold of them I remember going to
1: the so when I went back so my parents live in Surrey in, in a town called Woking and so the Woking Hour Price a town that celebrates its its, it's local song celebrates the fact that it doesn't have a cinema so that's how <laughs> <the> desolate <laughs> Woking was in, in the early in the late 80s early 90s anyway and the, the hour price there you know which is the, the take shop i just would buy what was on the shelf so around the same time the other one i bought was before the flood Mm. because it had the most songs on it i thought well you know i've got to just try and pack this stuff in um so i had a very odd entry in terms of you know the sort of classic versions came to me much later you know knocking heaven's door the before the flood version for me was the seminal version i remember listening to it you know headphones on Mm. just before going in to do my a-levels you know nervous and worried and knocking on heaven's door was my sort of grounding Moments, you know, but it was that version, and it wasn't until mm. I then bought Biograph. I splashed out oh, CDs. Yes. My mum got a CD player, and then we took off, and then and then it was Biograph. So I was still doing these big sort of anthologies mm. at the time, which I'm very grateful for because I didn't. There was no internet, mm. and so there was no one feeding me opinions about Bob right. Dylan and saying, oh, "This is a crap album. This is a good album. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's gone off the boil here." For me, it was just, yeah. it was just like someone had handed me all the treasure. Uh, well, they'd handed me a map and some of the treasure, and it turns out the map was endless. <laughs>
0: but, you know? but going yeah. back to, say, yeah. Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. Right. So you're 19 and... 19, yeah, well, I was about 17, 18 when that first, when that first mm, hit. But when you first heard it, that, that yeah, time that was, you listened to it for five hours. Yeah, yeah. So how did it feel? I mean, what the hell was going on when you heard that? Can you remember what uh, you Everything. Felt?
1: I mean, it was... Th- the thing that struck me first was I'd never heard music sound like that I didn't know that people made you know I even when you listen to the sort of even like the Velvet Underground which I was very into at the time those sort of lo-fi early records weren't like that it was this kind of wall of sound this cascading kind of waterfall of piano and organ and then that voice but it was then it was the lyrics and I think it was it's a song that's on the surface level, it's it's he's kind of having a, a go at a kind of, or he's talking to. It, it sounds like a socialite. It's not like he's talking to some some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, one of those. You know, who is it? I know it's some sort of sixties person that he's sort of an amalgam of various women that he knew, and 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 who's clearly come from some sort of privilege. So I suppose on a very superficial level, that was accessible for me. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really blindsided me was the final verse and I was too young to really understand what this meant, but the, there was a sort of similar, the the other sort of parallel thing that was happening to me was I was discovering Jack Kerouac at the time and Allen Ginsberg and, and the beat poets. And having read on the road in about one sitting, a sort of undercover of night at school, while I was meant to be reading, I was meant to be preparing for an Oxford entry, and I was meant to be reading, you know, Dombey and Son or something horrific. So I just, but I was reading, (laughs) no offence to Dombey and Son, but but it was on the road that was speaking to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the reference to Napoleon in rags, I just couldn't quite articulate what it was, but Mm -hmm. something about that archetype, that character that he creates in that, for me, Because I think what he's talking about in the song, ultimately, he's talking about ego death. He's basically saying, when you ain't got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. You're invisible now. You've got no secrets to conceal. You know, that is, we all of us reach that point in our lives at some point. And I was going through quite a tough time. I was emotionally sort of quite gutted out by being at school. I felt very sort of remote and isolated and, you know, amazing sort of facilities and privilege of being in a school like that but at the same time I felt very much I felt very lost you know I'm, I'm a teenager I'm falling in love and I'm falling out of love and I'm being rejected and suddenly this voice comes to me from nowhere and, and there was this sense of once I'd you know on the road opened up this idea of going west of getting out of the sort of cage and going and doing mm. something extraordinary and then Napoleon in rags. And I was thinking just the other day because I, I took my, um, my partner to see Jerusalem the other day, which I'd seen the original production. And that's that character. You know, it's, I don't know if you've seen the play, but Johnny Rooster Byron, Mark Rylance's character is Napoleon in rags. It's that same, it's this kind of trickster character. It's this person who challenges us into a state of authenticity and basically says, I'm not going to feel sorry for you. It, you know, when, when the shit hits the fan, that's the moment when life begins. This is the moment, you know, come to me welcome, welcome Mm -hmm. to actual existence, welcome to the earth, welcome to the sky, the sun, all these things. And I think that's... And so in my less developed mind back then, something stirred in me. I mean, that song has been another, you know, anthem for me. And although it's the obvious Bob Dylan song in some regards, I think he's he i don't even think he quite knew what he was doing with that with that lyric i think he he knew he was doing something but i think it's something that he created and then started to develop an well, didn't he call
0: it um, a stream of vomit mm-hmm. uh, because it was yeah. he originally had it ran for like yeah would exactly. have run for like well, 25 it was kind of minutes Kerouac style wasn't it it was like a yeah. Yeah. scroll of yeah, ideas
2: times,
1: yeah And I think it's, and in a way, I don't think he is Napoleon in rags. I don't think that's who Dylan, I don't think he's putting himself into the song so much, but I do think that he is articulating this kind of character who I then encountered later in life, the sort of archetype of the wild man, of the person that we have to meet at some point in our life, usually in order to liberate ourselves from the various cages around us and to become sort of more fully alive, more fully realised as people. And I think that's where it then sort of ties into that sort of 70s period where he went through the same, you know, his life collapsed, everything fell apart for him. And then I think he had to sort of do something quite similar. I think I feel, I imagine if one, I would speculate that if you were to talk to Bob about the 70s, if he was to even remotely want to have a conversation about it. And we know from obviously the movie, he's like, I don't even remember it, I was yeah. even born, you know. <laughs> um, who knows? But, uh, but, but, but I think there's that, 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 that is, yeah, I think he's, he creates some kind of an archetype there that I think for me just spoke to
0: me and lasted, has lasted into this day. I mean, did that, has it gotten you into trouble on a personal or professional level? Um,
1: I mean, it got me... Well, it got me into... I mean, did it get me into trouble? Well, I think it certainly made me bolder because the other thing he's advocating in that song is the, is the not the elimination of fear, but the, just the kind of confrontation with fear. It's mm. like, you know... Shit's gonna go down. It doesn't matter where you come from and who you are. It's gonna happen. It's gonna come at you. And when it comes at you, you're gonna need to be ready. And you remember, you see, and you know that kind of shadowy figure that you used to laugh at. You said, "I'm glad I'm not him." Yeah, thank God I'm not me. That's who you're gonna have to turn to.
0: It's funny. This is a a slight, uh, not a segue. I don't mean for it to be a segue. But I saw a scene the other day. I'm rewatching all of Mad Men. Oh my god. Amazing. And yeah. I've gotten to the point where so I'm rewatching it. I've seen it before mm. and I'm getting a whole other set of meanings. Wow. And there's one scene towards the end of I think the 3rd season where Conrad Hilton gets Don Draper in and says basically says Don your fairly small advertising company is being bought by McCann Erickson and so you will have no autonomy. You're dead in the water. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm removing my Hilton Hotels from, from you, and uh, that, that's all over with. But he's been a kind of a father figure to Don Draper. Hmm. And Don Draper is really upset and angry and hurt and says, you know, thanks a lot. You, know, call, you, yeah. you, know, you called me your surrogate son at one point. And he says, whoa, 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 stop. And he says to him, this is the moment that you become a human being. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, yeah. It's hard. Uh, Just find out who you are. I didn't think, are you one of those people who whines and collapses? And I thought you were made of, you know, sterner stuff. Anyway, and then Don goes on to make sure that he gets himself fired and gets all his partners fired, starts a new agency and is reborn. Now, I know it's just an advertising thing, but it did remind me of that sort of reinvention, seeing what you're made of.
1: Well, it's an archetypal you know, it's, yeah, it's a journey. It's the hero's you, journey. You, journey isn't yeah, it? it is the hero's journey, and you have to go down before you can come back up again. Yeah. you know, and I think that's something that Bob, you know, I think he was conscious of it in the sixties, and I, 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 I think of Bob in the sixties as almost like an older brother, but I, I think in the seventies, I think from the sort of Peckinpah movie onwards, something starts to shift, and I think he starts to. Well, actually, I would say probably there's, there's traces of it even in in the basement tapes. Like Tears of Rage is a song that has real grief in it, and it's very, very. It's not harrowing, but it's but there's an authenticity there which you've you've heard occasionally, but that's where he's kind of letting the mask slip a little, and he's just belting it out from the heart. You really hear it on those on those mm. recordings, and I think that there's a one of the people that I've been I sort of came across sort of in the last four or five years was uh, is the American poet Robert Bly I don't know if you know who I mean yeah who died just yeah. before Christmas actually yeah. and there's sort of all these things tied together because it turns out Mark Rylance and you Robert Bly and, and Rylance is someone that I know through mutual friend and this I don't know Mark Rylance but I, we have a mutual friend but anyway the point is these all these sort of things started to come together and they all clustered around Bly and Bly was this you know, wonderful American poet in his own right, but in the sort of late 80s, he wrote a book called Iron John, yeah. which I'm, you might or may not be aware of, which is a kind of, you know, it's a book of its time.
0: But have you read it? I did back in the day because right. it was very well known back in yeah, the day. Yeah, it's
1: huge. It's like a New yeah. York Times bestseller it was, for like it 20 was, weeks or something. It was, it was
0: going huge. back to the forest and...
1: Well, it became quite quickly sort of ridiculed and parodied over time. Mm-hmm. And it became this idea, yeah, the sort of city slickers idea that, you know, white bourgeois corporate types would head off to the woods for a weekend and hug each other and then everything would be okay. I mean, which it does a massive disservice to, mm. to blight, to be honest. And I think, and what he actually sort of talked about was this. And in fact, Iron John is about. It's a sort of retelling of a grim fairy tale called Iron Hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially it's about a, you know, there's a forest and, and you know, there are all these things and various people disappearing. And basically they sort of excavate this lake and they find this wild man at the bottom of the lake and they put him in a cage and they take him into the castle. And then the young prince comes down and he's like, um, starts to make friends with him. And basically Iron John says, if you let me out of the cage, I'll kind of show you amazing things. And he's like, I can't get out of the cage because I don't have the key. And he's like, the key is under your mother's pillow. And there's this whole sort of archetypal mythological storytelling kicks in. And and it was my encounter with Bly that sort of took me back into a really shifted my relationship with Bob Dylan, actually, in terms of what I think he was where he's reaching for. And I I, I realized I said that you go from he goes from being like this older brother and starts to become for me in the sort of 70s version of Bob coming out of basement tapes and into sort of Pat Garrett, he becomes someone who I think starts to accept the mythology and it starts to accept the Americana from which he comes in such a way that I think he then becomes, he starts to become an archetypal, almost like a father in in some ways. I think he he, he takes on that role for a lot of us, I feel. And I think it's mm. very sort of clear and perhaps in a more superficial way in how some people react to him. But I think it's a much deeper understanding that, and of course being an archetypal journey of course he's not really our father he is just our journey towards fathering ourselves and i think that is the, that's the journey you go on and when you really dig into that material yeah,
0: if I recall, the wasn't a, it wasn't a movement. The going back to Robert but well, It was, Blyman, called, well, it was it called, called the, the men, new new man, wasn't it? Was called it? The wasn't men's it? movement. Yeah, and then yeah, and, and Martin Amis did a very famous
1: sort of takedown of it. I think. Well, it's so easy it. to so, take down. You see, that's yeah. the. Yes, and, it, and and it's it, it is except uh, thanks thanks to YouTube, there are thousands of hours of Bly's. Gatherings, and there's one which is quite extraordinary. It's called Men and the Life of Desire, and it's 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 him with a, another psychologist called James Hillman, who is a sort of union who come over from Switzerland, an mm-hmm. American, but he'd been out in Switzerland for years, and a kind of rejected psychotherapy. He, he sort of put a bomb under psychotherapy, and there's a guy called Michael Mead, who is also a sort of storyteller, and they te- they are these unbelievable storytellers, and they bring seven, eight hundred men into a room, and these are broken Reagan era '80s males who are who've been living the sort of white picket fence yeah. lifestyle, and are empty, hollow suicide rates spiking there's a crisis and of course what Bly identified which was that as feminism started to gain strength and started to gain power it wasn't that the women were trying to fix the men the 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 message of a lot of feminists is that the men had to fix themselves and that's what Bly understood is that these men you're not going to get fixed by strong women you know you're going to have to you've got to fix yourself and to fix yourself you're going to have to grieve. And that, I think, is what happens in the 70s and bringing Bob back into that. Mm. And when I sort of, in my life, when, when I had to grieve a couple of years ago when my marriage ended, I, inca- and simultaneously, by the way, Bob releases all of Blood on the Tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so I had plenty of <laughs> material. Yeah. But, 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 but that is very much, the, and that's the Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, The Archetypes, mm. this, this going down before you can come up. You have to go down and, you know, you have to disappear into that grief state for a while. And you can't rush it, but you can, if you accept it and you welcome it, if you make friends with Napoleon in rags, there is a journey back.
2: You'll find out when you reach the top, you're on the bottom. Yeah, exactly that, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's it's pretty intense, but it does make a lot of sense to me. And that's where yeah, I feel quite comfortable in that relationship now with Dylan because there is a, I don't know if you have this, but, you know, why are we so obsessed with Bob Dylan? It's it's like some people just look at you and they just think, what's the matter with you? You know what (laughs) I mean? Like I have a lot (laughs) of, I'm a very busy person. I'm happy to say it. I've got lots of cool things happening in my life. And, you know, but there is this unending and unbroken and uninterrupted relationship I've had since that. Infidels was the sort of beginning, but then when Like a Rolling Stone hit, as like I said, my life was never going to be the same again. Yeah. And that
2: relationship was sealed. I also think there's something about Like a Running Stone, because I heard it too on that Greatest Hits album, although I, I remember it being the studio version, but that yeah. doesn't matter. The, the fact is, it didn't make that much of an impression on me. When I heard it as the opening track of Highway 61 Revisited, that did. And like mm. you say, this was the beginning of this tape that you put on. Mm. It's the opening of something. Yeah. you know When that drum kicks in, I mean, enough's been written about that, but it's all true. You know, There's something about the announcement of that, of that f- opening drum beat that really, really does kick your head in, yeah, and kick it open, um, in a way that if you bury that song in the middle of a side somewhere, d- I don't think it has quite the same effect.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I can't. It's hard to compare it because it was so overwhelming for me. And, you know, it did. I mean, it was had such an impact. You know, I left school and the next thing I did was I bought a ticket to America and mm. my friend and I went. We got to New York. We bought a station wagon and off we went. And that's when I got to hear Bob live for the first time because we found out that he was touring. Where did you um, uh,
0: see him? Well.
1: We, so we, we made our way to Seattle, we had this 20 foot station wagon, 74 station wagon, which we got off some Australians for $300 and their thing was like, okay, mate, you know, don't get insurance in New York, you got to get it in Minnesota, it's much cheaper. So we like, great. So we drove out uninsured out of New York and this, having, and I'd only just passed my driving test fourth time this like boat and we get into a motorway pileup, but luckily this car is so bulletproof that everyone else, we were fine. So we'd be we chug along and, you know, and, the, and the Americans are like, okay, guys, you want to do the paperwork? But like, no, thank you. We're fine. You know, we shoot off. We, finally, we <laughs> we finally get to Minnesota, and we get this like piece of scrappy paper, which I'm sure wasn't worth anything. Then we finally make it to so Seattle. did you, you did you not go to Hibbing? No, no, because I wasn't that sort of entrenched in the Bob mythology at that. in terms of the biography. I just, it was songs and it was, and also I didn't even, I'd only seen one artist live, which happened to be Lou Reed actually, just before I'd left. And that was the first time I'd seen a rock and roll artist of that era live because I don't know if you remember, they were sort of approaching 50 at that time. And this sense was that their golden age was gone. Mm. So anyway, so I go to, we get up, we end up in Seattle. Of course, what's happening at that time is Nirvana blows up. So I was in America the year of the LA riots. I was in LA just two days after the LA riots for the Rodney King riots so it's that whole period but also Mm. which is the same summer that Smells Like Teen Spirit was on every single Mm. radio station ever you know and so Seattle was suddenly this swarming mass of record executives and cool people my old school friend was living there at the time so we sort of stayed with him for about we were there for weeks and weeks and weeks actually anyway we're driving into downtown Seattle the Seattle Paramount Theatre it says live and in person Bob Dylan and I was like oh my god
2: <laughs>
1: so of course it's sold out but my friend Christian was a bouncer for various clubs and he goes oh I know, the, I know the guys let me see so we the next day we're summoned backstage and this big bouncer guy sits us down on some pallets and he's like okay how much you got you know so we gave him basically and <laughs> my friend had absolutely no interest in Bob Dylan at all. And he was like, We had we're on a limited budget and this guy goes, fifty bucks and I'll get you in. And my friend's like, Are you joking? And who is Bob Dylan anyway? Do you know what I mean? I'm like, We're going. (laughs) So we're giving the, I give him the money and he gives us both nights and we get front row balcony seats for two nights. He's playing two nights. And the other thing that was happening is that he'd only recently played with the dead. So all the deadheads gathered like sort of, they were following him around America. So all these kind of caravans and, and Winnebago's turned up and all these hippies got out and they were all singing and trying. They set up like market stores and it was this wild kind of scene outside the Seattle Paramount. We go and see Bob and I'm like, oh my God, it's Bob Dylan. I can't believe this is actually happening. And again, no internet. I had no idea what his live sound was like in 1991 or 92, whatever it was. We go go in, and he comes on, and I checked on Setless FM the other day, checked that my memory was correct. He comes on, and they start playing Rainy Day Women, and my friend's like, okay, what's going on? You know, What is this song? Cacophony. He shuffles onto the side of the stage and plays the harmonica for the whole song. Doesn't even sing. (laughs) and my friend looks at me and he's just like are you you joking anyway he then sort of rumbles through and yeah my mate's just like what song's this what song's this and i'm like i i mean i think it's you know wiggle wiggle maybe you know so we're we're blasting through and then we carried on so we sort of chugged around america we were there for ages we went to we did thousands of miles in this car and then we went to we were in la and we got out of la and again it was just after the riots and it was a pretty heady time to be in america and we went to Vegas thinking, well, as you do, you, know, you can't be an American. Not- so we go to Vegas, and as we're driving in, live and in person, Bob Dylan and his band. And my friend looks at me. Anyway, as he's looking at me, as if to say, if you say a word, <laughs> on the radio comes a go, Okay, so tonight, down at the Dolphin Bar and whatever, there's a Bob Dylan alike contest. First prize tickets to see Bob Dylan. So I'm like, if we, and, and so he's just like, are you serious? So And, we, and we're 19-year-olds. We're we don't have... So we had fake ID. We had these youth hostel passes, which we had very, very carefully with a pen knife scraped off the top layer and drawn in digits to make us look like we're 21, which in those days had got us in and out of all the bars. No one had ever turned us away. And they never looked at our passports, driver's license, anything. They're just these ridiculous youth hostel yeah. passes seemed to work. So anyway, so we go down to this bar. They get us in. And I entered the contest... And won. Oh, really? so <laughs> wow. so then we we get these tickets to to see Dylan in Vegas. So then and also, I mean, well,
2: you know, hang on, what song did you do first? Of I
1: all? did "I Want You," which is a like... weird choice. <laughs> did you
0: acapella? <laughs> did somebody? That's what I meant.
1: Wow. No, no. Guilty
2: Undertaker Size. That's
1: me in front of a bunch of bemused <laughs> Americans who I think they think Bob Dylan is the guy that sang in "We Are the World." Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I don't know what they. Mm. So anyway, so yes, and and then they were like, oh, you know, first prize, Justin from London, whatever, you know, so suddenly I'm like, (laughs) and of course I'm panicking that they're going to find out that we're 19, (laughs) which because the whole thing was very deeply illegal, but we do, we managed to sneak in and we go and see him. And actually that was the the sort of breakthrough moment in terms of life. That was because the the Seattle gigs were quite disorientating and I was, you know, it was semi-religious just to be in the same room as him at that point, but. I was quite mystified by the sound. I wasn't used yet to his mm. voice. I couldn't. His voice was very low in the mix in those days. Mm. Possibly on purpose. He was trying to, I don't know if he was trying to sort of push his what, voice Was it out. quite different from
0: Seattle? Uh,
1: said? Well, no, so the, the Vegas set was different. There was something, for a start, he came on in a gold coat, and he just looked awesome. And I thought, of course <laughs> you do, because you know this is Elvis Lance. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and that was, and then even then I got a yeah. sense of that witty way in which he makes these little tiny references, like when he played Hard Times at the Fla in... You know, in 90, three, three? 93, yeah. you know, because it's all Irish people. As far as Dylan's concerned, he's going to sing him a song about the famine because, you know, the hard times is what they call the famine. So he mm. sings. And so, you know, he does these little moments, which mm. I always think are beautiful. And those are often the highlights of the gig. Anyway, going so we, but it was because I think I was with an audience that seemed to there was a focus there that perhaps was maybe I was more focused, but I do remember at the end it was quite astonishing. At the end he came back, he shuffled back on for his encore, and it was blowing in the wind, which of course is a kind of bog standard Bob Dylan song. But I looked around and I realized, oh my God, these are all people who remember this song from the time when it meant every, it was their. It was their song. This is the anthem yeah, of a generation. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was very moving. And it was the days of cigarette lighters. And you could hear a pin drop. And it was quite astonishing. And he just did it. And I, and I remember, I've, I haven't even dared look for a, a YouTube bootleg if there is one of the, of the, I don't care, because my memory of it was yeah. that he just nailed it. And it was, I remember getting, just feeling, okay, I, I think I understand this now. And it was, I was really lucky that I saw him, I think, in America in that way, mm. because these people, you know, it was a homecoming of some description. And it felt like they were welcoming him. And, and there was a gratitude. And I think they'd all sat through a couple of slightly random versions of songs that probably they were all kind of looking at their watches. But that blowing in the wind moment was absolutely heartbreaking, I have to say. It was really powerful.
0: Have you ever experienced any other weird synchronicities like that? with I Dylan?
1: Yes, well then, so, so just before Vegas,
0: we're in... LA we're on Venice Beach I've had
1: several so this okay I don't know ahead. how long we've got no but, no uh, we've got them. so on. well the, the, the first the, the one that was just weird was that we were on Venice Beach um, we driven we driven down through San Francisco whatever we arrived in LA obviously it was post riots and we so first of all we took a wrong turn and drove into South Central LA and suddenly all these buildings are burning you know smoldering oh, the National Guard and this guy bangs on the window he goes what the hell are you doing here and he goes look over there you see that building there were 6,000 guns in that building yesterday two days ago and now there are None and none of them are get out, you know, get out of here. So we'd like in our car. And so we end up on Venice Beach hanging out with these people that we sort of picked up, waifs and straws we picked up along the way. And I'm sitting on the beach and we see the Grateful Dead Tattoo Parlour. Now, what I didn't know at the time is that I think Dylan had a boxing gym or something around yes. there, didn't he? He owned a gym or something? Yeah, yeah. I think he still owns it actually. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Anyway, I, so I say to my friend again, you know, my poor friend, <laughs> who somehow is still with me at this point. He goes, I said, should we get tattoos? <laughs> so he's like, you know, as you do. So he goes, and this is the, before, you know, the world was inked. So we trundle along, you know, another act of rebellion. I'm out of boarding school. Why don't I get it? So I go in and as I go into the Grateful Dead tattoo parlor, Bob Dylan walks out of it, brushes shoulders with me. Gets on his motorbike and drives off. Now I'm, I I see this old guy and I'm like, I was my brain was not working fast enough. You know, I was like the visual maths. And then they, these the dudes inside they're like, man, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, whoa! And, they go, and then so I turn around, and he just literally gets on his motorbike and drives off pretty much into the sunset. So that's like, I'm like, are you serious? So we go in and they, they were freaking out because they'd asked him to sign. He'd just come in and he hadn't, you know, classic Dylan. They said, you know, he comes, and they go, oh my God, it's Bob Dylan. And he, Bob... He didn't say a word and they gave him their stack of postcards on one of those carousels and the you know, 60s Bob, whatever. And they had a whole bunch of them and they said, would you sign these for us? And he took them the whole pack and they, they gave him a pen and he very hard pressed his signature into the top one and went through into the <laughs> and handed them back. <laughs> And they're like, they, they were like, I think he thought that was like going to go through or that was going to, you know, they were trying to work out what he meant by that. But what
0: do you think he was doing in there in the first place? He I didn't he, get a tattoo. No, really. he was just browsing Grateful Dead Tattoo, but I told you yeah, the
1: dead. I wonder what that looks like. You know, it's like he does, you know, he yeah. turns up at the homes of the birthplaces yeah, yeah. of his heroes unannounced and gets arrested or whatever. You know, that's the kind of, I imagine what do you do if you're Bob Dylan wandering around Venice Beach after you've know, been down to the gym, smoked 10 packets of Marlborough, and now you're going to go and, I don't know, just exactly that. And then there was one other sort of weird, one other sort of weird encounter. I, we're not Again, a sort of near miss was, so then I was at university and by that time, I mean, again, I mean, Dylan Stock, when I was at university, I mean, I don't know, we're, we're probably not, I think you're a bit younger than me, Luke, but, but we were but, but we were at this... Um, it was low. It was low. And I was, it was the good as I've been to you era. And I, you know, I'm, by that stage, I'm the guy that got on a, tra- I was in Bristol, got on a train and went down to HMV Oxford Circus so I could buy good As I've been to you mm-hmm. the day it came out with Harvest Moon, which was released the same day. Yeah, yeah, I
2: remember.
0: I brought them
1: back, and everyone's like, Oh, the Neil Young album's cool. And I go, Well, let's listen to the Bob <laughs> album. Room, <laughs> e- room Empties. And I dragged my friends down to Hammersmith to see the concerts there, which yeah, I have and... to say I thought was stunning. I mean, there's a that Pretty Peggy he played, I'll never forget that. And in fact, I got a bootleg at
0: Glastonbury that year of that concert to check that I was right. And it was absolutely astonishing. What was I mean, I'm, I'm interested because I yeah. didn't go to the concert, but I know Pretty Peggy from the first album. Yeah. But it must have been very, very
1: different. Oh, it's glorious. Well, he, it was this thing that I think, there's a thing that I call Dylan Duende, which is where he, I mean, I mean you're familiar with the concept of Duende, I'm sure, no. which is, this, well, it's, it's a its a flamenco idea. So um, the poet Lorca, mm. I think, first possibly coined the phrase. And so Duende is that state of being that the Spanish flamenco singers reach when they are basically connecting to the earth. And it's that mm. kind of really primal sound that's somewhere between grief and ecstasy—it's mm-hmm. a kind of the two things—and the, the body becomes a kind of vessel for sound and emotion. And I've experienced it firsthand when my brother-in-law got married in Spain. He had a flamenco singer. Um, he's pretty much, he, he, although he's entirely English, he's you know fluent in Spanish and lived there for many years. And we were right down in the south in Andalusia, and. I heard that sound and I, and it it is there's nothing like it. I mean it is it is the sound of the earth. It's the sound of the ancient voices calling to you from eternity and it's channeled through these inc- unbelievable singers. But it's also something that I think other singers and other people it, it's it's when you kind of truth lands, you know. And I think Bob does this sometimes and and Pretty Peggyo is that moment when and it's like and he's done it I think several times there's several recordings I could point to where something happens. A good example is, uh, is um, One More Cup of Coffee, the, the Seacrest Motel version on the big Dill, mm-hmm. um, Scorsese box set. Right. I don't know if you know, I'm sure you know all the versions off by heart, but, the, but, the, but that version, he says, when he sings, my daddy, he's an outlaw. Listen to the way he says outlaw. That's Duende. Like my oh, daddy, okay. he's an, and he's like, it's like, it's almost like a howl. And he does it and it's like Wolfman, Wolfman, Wolfman. There's these moments where something mm, kicks mm. in and that hard rain he sings with the orchestra in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, these moments where I think he transcends time and place and something, the Pretty Peggio yeah. is pretty close to that. And so it's, it's I guess, we must out uh, to and it's, and it's melancholy. It's very sad the way he sings it. The way he did the fourth time around at Wembley in about 2000, there was a version of that. You know, he takes some of those
0: slightly jaunty
1: or slightly more, you know, songs that you don't expect well, to be Well, Jaunty, sad. as you
0: say, the the original one yeah. is almost like a joke song. And it's you really... Where the hell is Venario, doesn't he say? Yeah, know.
1: but this one is like, you know, the captain fell in love with a lady like a dove. And, and then, you know, and, and, and the way he sings, you know, and, and that song is pretty harsh. I mean, it's a pretty unpleasant song, the way he's threatening this sort of genocide if she won't take him. And then, mm. of course, he dies. The captain, he's dead, and he died for a maid. And I remember being absolutely spellbound. And those, I've had those moments, I'm sure we all have, where... Whatever else has happened in a Dylan gig, something's landed and somehow he's connecting to something and mm-hmm. he's in that place. And, you know, as actors, I'm sure you know that moment where you don't even remember what you did, but yeah. I mean, you did something and you, that's Duende. Hmm.
0: Wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would to say wow. Well, just... <laughs> have, you know. have you ever seen him do that in concert any other time? You, you've mentioned a few, but are there any, any others? You um,
1: thought? Are there any others? It's a good question.
0: because um, I know he's always looking for it. That's the yeah. that's the thing and it's I think it's the seeking of that duende. I agree. That can get incredibly messy from an audience point of yep. view and incredibly tedious.
1: Definitely. And you you'll wait and for me that's the Dylan gig. I mean, I'm going to these concerts. I've yeah. seen about 25 26 times now and you go, and I've been to concerts where I've walked away and I don't think I've experienced it, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a very feeling. Because he doesn't feeling. always find it. Yeah, and yeah. Then I've, I remember I saw him in Cardiff and this is the other time I sort of, so I was in my car with my friend John who I'd converted to Bob and we were now literally dressed like Bob Newworth and and, and I was, you know, we had the, the spotty shirts and the sunglasses and we were horrendous and we would play a live gig every week at a pub called the Robin Hood where we literally just did the whole kind of Dylan catalogue. And I'd taught myself acoustic guitar and harmonica by this point. And it was all, I'm sure, deeply embarrassing. But it was my sort of, I was trying to sort of immerse myself in something at the time. Anyway, so we're driving to Cardiff. We get there in some hideous kind of sports arena thing where he's playing. And we're in traffic. And I look over (laughs) and I feel this, and I look, and this person is looking at me. And these two huge bouncers in between them is this small guy in a hoodie staring at me. And I went, oh, my God, it's Bob Dylan. (laughs) And I shouted it so loud. Did he just look and, and he just, in fact, he wasn't looking at me, but he turned when I said that. I was like, it's Bob Dylan. And John goes, what? And of course, then we're thinking, what do we do? Do we stop the car? Do we? And of course, you know, we're in traffic. And I, I'm so glad. I mean, it would have been horrific to try and mob him at that point. And there he was. I mean, literally, he was about as far away as me, for me, as, as the engineer in, in, the, in the booth now. you know, and it, and it was just Bob Dylan. He lives. I mean, there he, there he is, you know, just walking, shuffling down the street half an hour before a gig starts in Cardiff. It absolutely was him. So that's as close as I've. I mean, I've never, I've never got close to sort of meeting him or having any kind of encounter. Close enough. But I feel, yeah, yeah, and I and I sort of, I don't know. I have a very strange, mixed feelings about meeting him because there's that. I remember there's a brilliant piece I read once in. um, It was uh, actually was a piece about an interview with Val Kilmer of all people in the years ago in the Sunday Times supplement. This was like early night mid 90s. It was sort of around sort of heat era Val Mm -hmm. Kilmer, and he tells this story about he'd been at some big LA party all the gossip was there and he was you know he was at sort of peak of his powers and obviously it, a lot of it had gone to his head and he was having a wonderful time and reveling in being a celebrity but he said he knew, he had an appointment back at Jack Nicholson's house where he was having dinner or a drink with Bob Dylan, Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando <laughs> which
2: i mean Oh God, someone write that as a plan. So he goes
1: and he tells the story and I remember it very well and, and, he, and he goes back there and, and he turns I mean, he's full of, all, and Dylan's there and he's full of all the gossip and Dylan, as usual, is very quiet or whatever and he goes, oh, you should hear this thing and, da, 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 and he does this whole, rattles off this whole thing about who's sleeping with who and who's been fired by who and whatever and but it's one particular person's misfortune that he's sort of talking about and, and anyway, and, and Bob just goes, apparently, this the way Kilmer told it was there's this silence and Dylan just goes, were you there, man? He goes, what do you mean? Were you there? He goes, I don't know. He goes, then it's just gossip. And he, and he said he was absolutely humbled. He said it was a real lesson. It's like, okay, these guys, this is not what they do. Do you know what I mean? And when you exist with these. And I sort of feel the same about meeting him. Like, what would you do that, you know, it'd be interesting to know how one would get around that awkwardness of how much more you know about him compared to how um, different he would be you know, to your existence. Yeah. Well,
0: you, you don't as far as I'm yeah. concerned. I mean, yeah. I... I don't think I would even. I think I'd. I'd just sit there and watch, or but I. I yeah. wouldn't want to, because it could only end in tears for you. Yeah. Um, he. Um, Val Kilmer was in Masked and Anonymous, I think, wasn't he?
1: I think. He, I don't know. Was I he? think he
0: was. Yeah. You know, there were so many people in it. There was a bit. If well, I. if I, I
1: haven't seen Masked and Anonymous. Okay, so that's. A bit of a
0: gap. It's pretty
1: terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've had mixed reports about it. And, I, and I, in fact, I think it's been mentioned quite a few times on the it podcast, has,
0: hasn't it? It has, it's because it's, of... scar- it's scarring. <laughs> but a lot of people are a huge fans of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, the soundtrack is, is great, yeah. because the soundtrack is songs that are foreign versions. Like, there's um, an Italian version of, like, A Rolling Stone, right, and a right. Japanese, kicks off with the Japanese version of... Well, I can't remember which one, but anyway, the soundtrack yeah. is actually quite fun. And then there's live versions. The best thing about it is there's about half a dozen live versions of Dylan and his band right, great. doing fabulous work. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's worth seeing for that.
1: Yeah, because when was it? Sort of early 2000s or something like that? Yeah, I, I want to say
0: 2003, Was it around Love or, or Theft sort of? Yeah, Dylan, just after that. Time, yeah, yeah. Though, Okay, yeah. yeah. No, it's,
1: it's, it's definitely yeah. worth seeing. And he was starting to kind of work out his sound. You know, He was starting to sound better around that time, wasn't he, in terms mm. of the live sound was coming together, as far as I remember. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah and they had Larry yeah. Campbell and Charlie Sexton.
0: Yeah, yeah that, it's that it's band. That band yeah. And they all yeah, look yeah, exactly. great on camera. And, that, and it's worth seeing for... There's probably about, you know, 25 minutes of excellent Dylan live music. I'm going to do it. Definitely. Did you ever, I'll ask you a poisonal question. I yeah. mean, has that ever gotten, is your obsession, let's say, <laughs> I don't know if it's fair to say, but I think it sounds like, you know, a bit obsessed. Has that ever gotten the way of, of your personal life or your... Um, Family life or your professional life or
1: no? I mean, it's no. I mean, I you know, I think I would balk at obsession as much as my children are probably laugh now and like you are obsessed, just accept it. Because my the current thing in my house is that my boys are very worried about what happens when Bob Dylan dies, so they've got this running thing going on that they don't talk to me about, which is like, what are we going to do? They've got this whole <laughs> I think they're preparing something. So, so yes, I mean they un- I think they understand what he means to me, and I, I think the. It's an obsession. If it's an obsession, I'm hoping it's a sort of, if there's such a thing as a healthy obsession, it hasn't... I think it's the opposite. I think without Bob, I, I would have stumbled more times than I have already. And then when I do stumble, the music is there. And it's not... You know, Bob Dylan is a creation, right? He's a f- yeah. phantom. I mean, yeah. who is Bob Dylan? None of us know who Bob Dylan yeah. is, you yeah. know, apart from people, you know, some of whom I know you've had on your show who've actually had experience with him. And even they sometimes are mystified as to who Bob Dylan is because they all get different versions. Yeah. But I think that for me... It's more, honestly, I mean, he's been in many ways a sort of a North Star for me when, you know, the good times and bad. But I find that it hasn't got in the way. Uh, it's I think there was a period when I was very young, when I was like, I guess, 1920, when I was so immersed. And so the dividing line between me and Bob Dylan was hard to find. And obviously it's ridiculous to sort of, you know, me expert public school boy wandering around in spotty shirts with an acoustic guitar, that wasn't going to last. But I had to kind of go through that in order to come out the other end and, and understand where he stood in relation to my life. And and I, I say to people, you know, we live on earth at the same time as Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney and all these other people who are... It's an extraordinary feeling that... And particularly at the time when I got into him, when he was this kind of everyone was saying, well, you know, oh, mercy, that was a kind of comeback. But let's face it, that's it. You know, and they did that 30th anniversary concert. And it all mm. felt like what was happening now was a, they weren't winding things up, but there was a sense of no one really knew what the future was. Was it just going to be bootleg archive releases or whatever? Mm. And then, you know, time out of mind lands mm-hmm. you know just and what was the one before that under the red sky or something you know yeah. it's like no well, one saw two, that coming uh, you know the two. oh yeah of course the acoustic yeah. records which actually right. i loved I, mean, mm-hmm. I found them i thought they were wonderful but they were very i mean if you listen to those acoustic records that it's not going to convert you to the voice is it no. it's not going to no them. and
0: then under the red sky was the follow-up wasn't it and then right everybody said he's burned out again and
1: yeah so yeah i mean if it, if it has got in the way i mean it's been hard i don't i don't know if i would have love the people I've loved as deeply as I did, if they'd not liked Bob Dylan, <laughs> I think that might have been, you know, I do come across people who go, no way, man, forget it. You know, and that for me is a bit of a cold moment. You know, I think Absolutely. I, I don't, you know, I'm not so shallow as to not hang out with people who don't like Bob Dylan, but I find it hard to imagine being in a deep, committed relationship with someone who didn't see something of what I saw.
0: Mm. One of my favorite moments in the last 10 years or so is when I'm listening to either Dylan or a cover version of Dylan, more often a cover version of Dylan, Mm. and my wife comes into the room and says, oh, this is good. And, uh, you know, who's this? And the pleasure (laughs) that I get. And that happens a lot because (laughs) there are a lot of, he wrote a lot of great songs and there are a lot of cover versions. And, you know, he's got a, Fairly easily recognizable voice up to a certain point, uh, so I can't slip it. But I have slipped it past her a couple of times, mm. where it's actually been Bob Dylan singing. Hundred percent. No, I love and all that. And that's right. um, my whole world. You know, I, I, it, it's a glow. <laughs> well, for... well, I got. I remember
1: a, a girl I knew at school gave me a mixtape with some National Skyline cuts on it, and mm. I hadn't. And I was like, "This is.
0: She's got it wrong. This isn't mm. Bob Dylan. Yeah, exactly. It can't I, be. You know what I, I was listening to the other day was the um, the whole Isle of Wight. Hmm. set and which i hadn't actually heard before right. and uh i was just amazed by it i was right. amazed by by his voice that he oh that ramona f- is
1: Heavenly, it's amazing. I mean, he sings, he only sings like three verses though, but it's really, it's, it's amazing. Oh, it's so yeah, so it's, it's, and it's like somebody yeah. else is singing it, oh, so the whole and, in time
2: as well. That, yeah, that, that,
1: that's very lovely. And pretty Sarah yeah. from yeah. that, I mean, that from that era, so beautiful. So, just to interrupt, the Isle of yeah. Wight. So, the other Dylan connection, weird Dylan connection for the Isle of Wight is that now this is an unverified story. So, for all the people out there who know, the, but when I, so you know, as you do as a teenager, at one point, I remember turning to my father who is exactly the same age as Dylan almost not to the day, but he. He's Born the same year, but he's March of 41. Dylan mm. was May of 41. Right. Um, so there's a lot of sort of father stuff going on, anyway. And uh, anyway, at one point, I'm sort of as a sort of grumpy teenager, I said, Look, you know, you were alive. I said, Look, here's Bob Dylan, right? And here's you. And the '60s happened to both of you, and yet one of them looks like they noticed, and one of them, you, I said, did you have any encounter with the Beatles? He said, any. So my father was a pilot in the '60s, and he had his own, he had his own little airline, which he ran these little sort of these these small kind of luxury VIP kind of airplanes. And he said, oh, I had the beetle, I flew the Beatles once. So at which point, my brother and I, were like, are you what? Said, Go on. He said, yeah. So they were going down to the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969, I think it was. For fuck's sake. <laughs> so we just like anyway the annoying thing about my father is he keeps no records of anything he never verifies anything there's no documentation to prove this so I'm so you know if a Beatle is listening to this or someone and he goes no we didn't we flew with you know well, three... TWA <coughs> we or we know from
2: Stephen's um, episode that it was three quarters of the Beatles wasn't it McCartney wasn't there but um, right. we can ask him he'll tell us well, well, they
1: went from Fair Oaks Airport, which is a little tiny little aerodrome near where my parents live, which is ne- very close to Weybridge. So, well, somebody flew them over there. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so this I'm holding on to. Th- I'm not. I'm not going to ever fact check this story because for me, it's like it's as it is. Yeah, don't if it. my dad flew the Beatles down to the Isle of Wight for Bob's return
0: to these shores, then that's very cool. As far that's as I'm good concerned, man. yeah. But, I mean, that, that is so teenager isn't it? Uh, you calling. Know, I know. obnoxious of me. No, <laughs> but, oh, I was exactly the same. <laughs> okay. I, was a, I, I remember saying, my dad was a, a businessman. He had a whole—he company that wholesaled toys and yeah. small wares, as they called them, uh, which in, involved fake dog shit and fake vomit and things like that. <laughs> and, Amazing. Uh, but he was once explaining to me, you know, he really wanted me to take over the business. And, and right. to his credit, I mean, I, I, I said i wasn't interested when I was ten years old and yeah. again when I was like twelve and again yeah. when I was fourteen and he finally stopped asking because i wasn 't remotely interested yeah. but he but he did explain business to me once how much fun it was because his business was always on a knife edge he was he went bankrupt a couple of times he was sued many many times because yeah. he would knock off toys and things in the uh, in China and uh, like uh, you know the big cabbage patch dolls you you remember those he he knocked he called them he always called them he called them like pickle face dolls or something imported them and the rcmp impounded him and he was you know sued Uh, but sometimes he would get away with it and so he was describing how much fun it was to do that and in fact he did live kind of you know on the edge uh in that way yeah but i but i said to him in my teenage um way i said so basically you lie to um, certain people about certain things and they're lying to people about certain things and they're all talking about getting the product in by, on this date but you don't know exactly when it's coming. And so it's, but it's basically whoever is the best liar. That's the way I saw it in my, uh, you know, whatever, 18-year-old. Yeah. Dope-smoking sort of straights are all... Yeah, yeah. Know. And uh, I, remember the, um, I remember how hurt he was by yeah. by that it's uh, that's the way I saw the world and, and it's only now that I I mean it's now that I can tell you that he was talking to me about having fun hmm. at the time I didn't see that yeah and, well, this it's funny, is, isn't it? You and you too, know, Dylan's relationship with his dad, we, which we never... It's only alluded to if you read all the biographies well, and that's things. that's why I'm you know. fascinated by. It. And that's why, anyway, I chose that
1: verse of One More Cup of Coffee because I think, you know, your daddy, he's an yeah. outlaw and a wanderer by trade. He teaches how to pick and choose and how to throw the blade. You know, He oversees his kingdom. He's talking about something I think it's the father that we all wanted it's the father we all need it's this it's the combination of this kind of outlaw figure and it's also someone who says this is how the world works it's there's all these sort of intricate and important things you know going back to my sort of Robert Bly conversation, Mm. that that's what he was advocating, which was, you know, we need to start fathering men again. They need to be properly guided into adulthood rather than just abandoned at about 12 and sort of, and, you know, go on then or do your own thing, you know. And I think that's where that speaks to me. And I, I, when I realised that that's ultimately one of the roles that the music was playing for me in my life Mm. and the the words, it brought me much closer to my own father. I kind of let him off the hook. I'm like, it's okay, because I've got the outlaw... In One More Cup of Coffee, I've got Napoleon in rags. I've got the architect of Murder Most Foul, you know, hanging out in the, somewhere in, in the world, in in my imagination, who's teaching me all those lessons, who's guiding me. And, and you can be, you're now released from that. You can just be my dad again, you know, and maybe you did fight the Beatles. Do you know what I mean? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, I think that's really, that, I've never heard that sort of theory before, but I mean, but my my wife does know that because I've had a lot of sort of, Heroes or fake yeah. heroes in my life, and uh, and she, you know, she knows that Bob Dylan is, if not, he is my surrogate f- father in a, in a lot Absolutely. of ways. And, and she actually said to me the other day, she said what's going to happen when Bob Dylan dies? She, she said that well, to me, she's f- yeah. fearful.
1: Well, I think it's kind of beautiful because he's, you know, he's an elder now, you know, yeah. in, a sort of, in a sort of deep, deep, old ancient cultural traditions. That's exactly what he is. And then he and he stepped into that role. And I remember, yeah. you know, I burst into tears when Murder, Most Foul landed. We were all of us thinking, what the hell is happening? It's an apocalypse. And I woke up one morning and just thought, mm. dear everybody, thank you for being my fans, or whatever it is, here's a song. And it's 17 minutes of, first of all, the ape, Classic Bob. We're all freaking out about the pandemic, so he t- decides to take us back to Kennedy. But actually, of course, what he does is he starts to just pour this extraordinary balm, I think, mm-hmm. into that song. That mm-hmm. is the healing power of that song for me is really, really powerful. It's, it's, it's a medicinal song for me. I was going on those long walks as well with my dog. My own life was in sort of turmoil at the time, and there was a pandemic, and I was locked in the house. And so I go out with the dog, and I go on these vast, you know, three hours sort of walks up at Wimbledon Common near where I live. And all I listened to was "Murderer's foul. Round and round and round, it went. It was my most listened to song that year, according to Spotify. But the thing is, it was just so... If he dies, it's okay. Of course, because he's, he's a human being. And time, you know, we, we're all of us ultimately going to die. It's okay, because actually, he's done so much more than I think we could ever have asked for, have, have hoped for. The first comeback, when George Harrison introduced him at the concert for Bangladesh, is like more than we could have asked for. He could have died on that motorbike. And then he does Blood on the Tracks. Then he does. Then he does the Rolling Thunder. Then it's hard rain. It's street. League, and then he becomes a born again Christian. And you know. And then he disappears into the eighties in a slightly odd. And then he comes back again. And then he disappears off into the Sinatra era. And then when we really didn't have any right to expect any more music from Bob Dylan, he releases that that record, that is, miraculously. I mean, and I think you can hear it in him that. I think for me, this, apart from Murder Most Foul, the standout song is Key West on that album. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a song I, that I've never heard him sound so at peace. He's, I think he's making you know He's talking about he's where the sky meets the sea. It feels like it's all coming together for him. And if that was the last song I ever heard him sing on a record, I think it, it would be a, the most a fitting and incredibly profound way to exit. But knowing Bob, he'll probably turn up with something completely bizarre. <laughs> that yeah. reminds me
0: of, of um, you know, when when I saw him a few times, uh, and I'm sure you did. Uh, I guess it was uh, in the early part of the 21st century, where they had the recorded announcement beforehand. Oh, yeah. They oh. say, he was the voice of a generation. And then he, haze he emerged of, from a age yeah, of yeah, substance yeah. abuse. What the fuck was that about? Because yeah. it was embarrassing to listen to. Yeah. But I thought, but Bob Dylan has sanctioned this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. What the hell... What the hell? It's just another, maybe another Bob Dylan thing that I have will never understand. I, I think, mean,
1: yeah, he's, I think he, there's, there's, that's the trickster energy. I think that's where he just likes to mess with yeah. us mm. and likes, you know, because I, mean, I remember when I saw him in Seattle, I think it was the thrill of when the lights went down, there was a ladies and gentlemen, Columbia recording artist <laughs> yes. Bob Dylan. I thought that was very <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I think there's a, the mischievous side of him has always been there. the sort of impish, puckish Dylan mm. is alongside all these other Dylans that in and he is so many things at once. And depending which one he decides to turn on at the time, whether you're listening to the Theme Time Radio Hour chats or you're looking at those paintings or you're then watching him dancing around on the stage weirdly with his hand on his hip. And I mean, he's, it's all going on in a very odd, very esoteric and completely unique way. But I think it's most of it's conscious, I'd say. I think I think he knows what he's doing.
0: Yeah, and, and people talk enjoys. about his, his sense of humor, yeah. mm-hmm. which you, which does manifest itself particularly, I guess, in the in the current series of concerts, because everybody says he will do something or say something that's that's really funny. Well, I yeah. have one of
1: those experiences when we saw him in Cardiff. It was an odd gig because it was a sort of really vast sort of football hall thing. And, he was, you know, and we were quite close to the front. And he did he sang Senor, which I'd never heard him do live at that point. Mm. And that was kind of amazing. Mm. Um, but he did it in this sort of, he didn't, have any, he didn't play the guitar in the concert. It was, he was doing one of his. It was long before he got behind that weird okay. keyboard. Right. Anyway, so he, at one point he did start talking. I'd never heard him talk in a concert. And you know, he usually is like, thanks, buddy. You know, that's about as much as you get. <laughs> then he stops and he goes, it's really good to be here in Wales, man. You know, I, I like it here. My father was from here, actually. Um, so it's great to be here. And he basically tells us that his father <laughs> was from Wales. I looked at my friend John, I'm like, no, what? are you kidding? No, he isn't. Abe Zimmerman. Uh, you know, yeah, from Odessa, yeah, I think. From you know, you Port think. Talbot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, and but again, but then there was no sort of inflection that suggested it was humour. He just lands it. And I guess yes. he's like, well, do with, that. <laughs> do with that as you wish.
0: Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. Is recorded back home in Studio 3 at Lipsync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network.
2: Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Gypsy
0: Queens will play your grand finale. Way down in some Tularosa alley. Maybe in La Rio Pecas Valley. Billy, you're so far away from home.